You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this fourth day of February 2012. I'd like to welcome everyone back to the program and, of course, invite you to check into my website, CorbettReport.com, where you can find previous episodes of this podcast and articles, interviews, and videos that I've created and conducted in the past. Now, right off the bat this week, I'd like to let everyone know that I will be out of town for the next week, so there will be no podcast next week. And there will be very few updates to the website over the coming week. For example, there will be no New World next week, next week. And uh, some of the other regular videos that I, I produce on a weekly basis will not be there. There will be Corbett Report Radio. I've lined up some guest hosts. So Monday night will be Eric Shine. Tuesday night will be Madison Rupert of EndTheLie.com. Wednesday, we have James Lane from the director of A Noble Lie, an excellent documentary on OKC. Thursday, we have James Evan Pilato of MediaMonarchy.com. And Friday, we'll have Richard Grove of TragedyAndHope.com filling in on the broadcast, doing their own things. They may have guests. They may take your, take your calls. Whatever's going on, I'm not sure. It's completely up to them. So tune in to Corporate Report Radio this week for all new broadcasts with guest hosts. And I will be returning after next week to resume the regular schedule. And I will just let everyone know that I'm going out of town to conduct some interviews related to a documentary project that I'm working on that's uh, being funded by GRTV at globalresearch.ca and grtv.ca. So through the auspices of the Center for Research on Globalization, I'm going to be doing some interviews and I won't let the cat out of the bag yet because I don't want to count chickens before they hatch, but I think it's going to be a particularly interesting project. So I hope that you'll stick with me on this and we'll see the results of it hopefully later this month. But on that note, of course, today, as always, we have a lot of information to get to, so let's get straight into today's episode. Welcome, my friends, to episode 217 of the Corbett Report podcast, Against Technocracy. Quote, What is called the capitalist system, that is to say the unsystematic exploitation of production by private owners under the protection of law, has, on the whole, in spite of much waste and conflict, worked beneficially by checking that gravitation to a universal low-grade consumption, which would have been the inevitable outcome of a socialism oblivious of biological processes. With effective restraint upon the increase of population, however, entirely new possibilities open out before mankind. End quote. Quote, the supreme direction of the complex of human economic activities in such a world must center upon a bureau of information and advice, which will take account of all the resources of the planet, estimate current needs, apportion productive activities, and control distribution. The topographical and geologic surveys, maps, statistics, are the first crude and uncoordinated beginnings of such an economic world intelligence. End quote. Quote, such a great central organization of economic science would necessarily produce direction. It would indicate what had best be done here, there, and everywhere. It would not be an organization of will imposing its will upon a reluctant or recalcitrant race. It would be a direction, just as a map is a direction. End quote. Quote, Intelligent control of population is a possibility which puts man outside competitive processes that have hitherto ruled the modification of species. There is a clear hope that, later, directed breeding will come within his scope. 
the organized world community conducting and ensuring its own progress requires a deliberate collective control of population as a primary condition, end quote. Yes, friends, today we are talking about technocracy. Perhaps this is a term that you're familiar with, and perhaps that's even more likely now that that term has become somewhat in usage uh, because of events in Europe in recent months. But I think it's best behooves us to understand the history of this term and where it comes from and who the real proponents of technocracy are. And those quotes that I've been reading to you, although they sound like some of the quotations from some of the modern-day proponents of this technocratic vision, are in fact almost a century old, coming from none other than famed eugenicist himself, H.G. Wells, writing in the 1933 tome, The Open Conspiracy. So I will put the link into the those, those quotations in particular, and of course to the work as a whole, so you can go and read it in its entirety, as I have, and come to your own conclusions about H.G. Wells and what he was advocating and why he was advocating it. But again, I think it's important to stress that all of these ideas that we see certain modern-day proponents of uh, resource-based economy and other such things coming out and promoting are by no means new, and they are by no means revolutionary. They have been around for a very long time, and in fact, it's been people like Wells and other Fabian socialists who have been attempting to put this into our, into our culture and into parlance for a very, very long time. So that is one of the fables of technocracy, the idea that of rule by a very elite class who know best how to, how to direct the resources of mankind. One of their fables that they like to rely on is that somehow this is a new and revolutionary idea and that somehow this is going to fundamentally change the ruling class when in fact it has been that very ruling class that has been openly writing about this for decades and decades, if not centuries and centuries. So on that note, let's start exploring the idea of technocracy. And as I say, this is a term that has become somewhat in use and in vogue at the moment because of what's been happening in Europe and the financial collapse there. So let's turn to RT and a report that they did in, on the rise of the technocrats in the wake of the European financial disaster. Time now for Word of the Day, where I break down a financial term or concept for our very smart viewer, but maybe not the financial expert in our audience. And today it is technocrat. And we've been talking about how technocrats are in charge now in Rome and Athens. And here's one other reason why you need to know about what exactly this means. Here's a headline that we saw today. Let's see it. Letting technocrats run Europe is bad politics and bad economics. Okay, whoa, so just what is a technocrat that this guy's railing against? Well, here is the definition. It is someone who is selected through bureaucratic processes, and that's the key, on the basis of specialized knowledge and performance rather than a democratic or popular election. In a technocracy, decision makers would be selected based upon how knowledgeable and skillful they are in their field. So, let's talk about technocrats and who these guys are in Europe right now. So in Italy, you have this guy, Mario Monti. He's the new prime minister. He replaces Berlusconi. Now, he's not a politician like Berlusconi. He's an economist and former commissioner of the European Union. He's also the current European chairman of the Trilateral Commission. And in Greece, 
who has replaced Prime Minister Papandreou as the head of the unity government, to technocrat Lucas, Lucas Papademos. This guy here, he is former central banker. He was a vice president of the European Central Bank and former governor of the Bank of Greece. So these guys weren't elected by the citizens of the countries to serve in parliament, and that's the key. As to whether countries are better off being ruled by unelected bureaucrats, which are technocrats, or democratically elected leaders, you can decide that. But now you know what a technocrat is. Now, when framed in that context, I think it's not very difficult for us to understand how such a system can go very, very wrong. Because although flowery platitudes about having only the most skilled and technically knowledgeable people in positions of authority would be wonderful because they would be able to use their pure light of reason to guide society along the path towards f fortune and po prosperity for all... But I think we all understand how such a system, especially when there are no checks and balances and all of the appointments are bureaucratic in nature, really ultimately only serve the purposes of the people who already have the power and are seeking to consolidate that power exactly as is taking place right now in Europe with the appointment of these technocrats to head these various countries. And I think we understand that very well. But the proponents of modern-day technocracy would argue that that isn't really a fair uh, shake at the system. That isn't really the best way to put the uh, to frame the context for the conversation, because technocracy is more than just that example. Technocracy is the idea that ultimately one day it will actually be the machines that will be deciding through the pure light of reason and logic alone what to do with our resources and how to organize our society, and that will be the best way to organize everything on the planet. And it's quite a step from here, working in the Monday day-to-day, everyday reality that we're working in towards that vision of the future in which we will be, uh, well, living in the circular plastic cities, the prefab cities of the some of the people who are promoting this theory in this day and age. So in order to try to connect that and try to see what kind of concept is really being put at stake here and what some of the modern day or latter day proponents of this idea would argue, well, let's give them a fair shake at the stick and let's take a listen to some of the self-proclaimed technocrats themselves talking about the technocracy movement. We're going to turn to a clip that, that aired on uh, public access television in the 1980s with some proponents of a North American technocratic movement discussing the idea of technocracy and the types of changes that it would bring to our society. Now here's your host for Forum 50, Television 50's Community Relations Director, Linda Johnson. Good afternoon and welcome to Forum 50. Today we're going to be dealing with an idea. The idea is technocracy. It had its inception in 1919 in New York City when an industrial engineer, Howard Scott, drew together a group of scientists, engineers, and economists who later became known as the Technical Alliance of North America. This technical alliance researched and studied how to apply the achievements of science to social and industrial affairs with the aim of providing a better standard of living in continental North America with the least possible waste of non-renewable resources. The alliance incorporated in 1933 as a non-political, non non-sectarian membership organization. Today there are units and members of technocracy in most states and in most provinces in Canada. It is supported entirely by dues and donation of the members. And today I have with me Mr. Rio McCaslin, who's the Director of Technocracy Incorporated, located, he's located in San Francisco, and Mr. John Tobby of Ronard Park. 
Technocracy by its very name is frightening to a lot of people because uh, I think a lot of people today feel that some of the problems we're having, rightly or wrongly, is, is because we don't understand technocracy and we feel like um, the technical aspect has maybe come, has gotten out of control, whether through pollution or use of uh, technology and doing away with jobs for people. Just describe why technocracy would be good for us, if you can. Well, I'm going to started off by asking a question, uh, and I'll answer your question. Okay. <laughs> what has happened to our economy? Here, the United States, one of the greatest nations in the world, or the greatest nation in the world, finds itself in trouble and uh, having difficulty solving the problems that are confronting, them, confronting us. Uh, Technoxy was born out of curiosity. Mm -hmm. uh, several men after World War I uh, decided that they would look into what technology was doing as far as our social structure was concerned. Uh, they had noted that many thousands of the boys were taken out of the industrial processes, sent to war, but at the same time we were able to produce not only for the war, but for ourselves without them. And they wondered how far this would go. And that's how it got started. And uh, now the question is, uh, uh, why are we facing a problem? Uh, Technocracy has asked that, and people have asked us why we are facing a problem. And the reason why we're facing a problem is because we have not adjusted to the change that technology has brought as far as our economic uh, and social order is concerned. For the first time in the history of man, uh, the citizens of the North American continent find themselves in a position where they can produce just about as much of anything that they care to due to technology. And, but somehow it has created a problem. Now, when the Great Depression hit us in 1930, it was a result that we had reached that point where we had too much of everything for the system to handle. I was in the milk business at that time, and I can remember we sold milk for five cents a quart. Peas from the farm were five and two cents a pound. Nobody was making money. Then Roosevelt stepped in, and lo and behold, how did he solve the problem? By destroying the farm products, pouring milk down in the sewer, shooting the hogs and cattle mm -hmm. to get back to a sufficient scarcity uh, so that we could start to rebuild again. Now, our process has become so adequate as far as our ability to produce that it doesn't take long for us to catch up and once again get in the same situation of having too much. Okay, now, so what, what technocracy is saying, then, we're not, are you going to affect the change in production, or what are you going to affect it? What, what would technocracy change for us today? If, if, you know, if, if the principles of technocracy could be applied to the northern continent now, how would we be affected? Would you change uh, the way we distribute? Would you change our social order? Would you change uh, the price and money system? How, what would you do? Well, we would change, we certainly would have to change the system. There's no question about that. Because the rules of the game as it is played today are, were valid 150 years ago. Uh, but since the advent of technology, they're not valid today. Uh, that's why we're having our trouble. We, you take money, for instance, uh, and when we mention money, of course, that hits everybody. Yeah. But money actually is not fulfilling its role. In other words, we have the technicians, we have the engineers, we, have what, we know what we have to do and want to do, but it's always a question of who's going to pay and can we raise the money. 
And right now, of course, we're going to cut down in our, 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 in our national program, we're going to cut down on uh, the amount of money that's going to be allotted to uh, the people that are poor, uh, the people that are sick, the people that need that, but it's too expensive. Mm -hmm. We say we've got to balance the budget. Uh, but we have all of the material things that we actually need. It's finding a way to organize our technology for the benefit of people. Well, that sounds fairly reasonable, doesn't it? I mean, certainly technology is this wondrous thing that has provided so much good to humanity in the past. And and certainly we do realize how the, uh, the current monetary system has been really a structure that's been put into place in order to enslave man rather than to free him. So certainly we are looking for alternatives to that. And, and it does make sense that if someone is knowledgeable and skillful in an area, that they're the best person to be directing that area. So, so what, what really is the problem and how does this start to become a problem? Well, I think that there is an underlying unquestioned assumption going on here or, well, let me put it this way. Let me not say that this clip that we have just listened to is somehow the total idea of technocracy or is somehow a totalizing understanding of that term. Of course, it's a widely used term. There are hundreds of different groups promoting different ideas all around the world, and it's something that's been talked about at great, great length for many, many decades now. So I don't want to try to make it seem like I'm, I'm setting up a straw man to attack here. By all means, please go and start exploring the idea more fully on your own time through whatever resources you want to, to dig up on technocracy and the idea idea of a technocratic movement. But to me, something that is underlying all of this that is very seldom brought to the fore is that in every age, in every society, in every era of human history, it has been a very few at the very top who have controlled the implementation of technology and thus been able to turn it towards their own ends. And this is not, once again, to say that technology is bad or that we should fear people with scientific understanding or expertise, but that they can be, even if they are not wittingly, they can be unwittingly used as dupes in a much much larger game that is taking place that has much different things that are going on towards very different ends than people might believe, even the people who are working towards it themselves. But let's stop speaking in abstracts and start talking about some more specific ideas. So let's take a listen to someone who's a more modern proponent of this idea of technocracy and the idea that we can build this world of, of scientific perfection based on technology and scientific understanding. A lot of people believe that the things I talk about had been uh, talked about in the past. Uh, when I was a member of technocracy, they said they had blueprints for the future. I never saw any. I asked to see them. The only blueprint they had was a rough on the continental hydrology, irrigation, but no real detail on it, how the, how the lift locks work on the canal or anything. And uh, I asked Scott how he felt about circular cities. He said, no, he believes in linear cities. And he did not question why circular cities. He just told me that we're going to use linear cities. Uh, cities in a line. So if you start here and you go through the whole city, you have to go back to where you started from. 
in the circular arrangement, if you go around and you come back to where you started, you don't need to go back. And your car is there. In a circular plan or distribution center, there are areas marked refrigeration, air conditioning, whatever it is, and you park your car adjacent to that. Instead of just parking in a big parking lot, you have to then walk over the shoe department or the eyeglass department. This way it's marked on the outside of the circle what's in there. So you park adjacent to that area. If more people use the food shopping area, there's a larger parking set for that. But the only way to find out is how many people a day go to the food area. How many people, what percentage go to the eyeglass area. So the parking areas are based on that, not Fresco's decision. So what people have to understand is how statistics are gathered, how they're decided upon, and that's by the behavior of people. If the most people go to the children's center, that has the largest parking area. If later on the schools become more efficient and work with less students at a time, the optimal amount of students depends on their age. The older people get, the more they understand if they're exposed. But children, you take a lot of children and you talk to them, like I'm talking to you, and you get feedback from the children. And the kind of feedback you get from the children determines how many children you can effectively change within a given time. If you find out that you should have no more than 15 kids at a time, depending on how sophisticated the subject is, you have to try it and find out how it works. And then when you write your conclusions, you say, in the system that I used, a certain number of children seem to learn faster. I haven't tried 17 different systems yet. There may be other conclusions. We welcome them. All right, we will leave that clip there. And if you want to, you can, of course, explore that uh, that interview more fully in its entirety by following the link from the documentation section, although I would personally warn that it gets even more rambling and coherent as time goes on. But that is Jacques Fresco, the leader of the Lucifer, Pro- I'm sorry, the Venus Project. And he is one of the modern day gurus of a type of technocracy that has, uh, well, a, a leader who likes to show pictures of gleaming prefabricated cities circular cities by the way it's circular because it's it's perfect and unbroken or something of that sort and uh who likes to promote the idea that we will soon all be living in these gleaming spotless plastic cities and that will be humanity's future forever and ever and you'll excuse me for being sarcastic about talking about this it is important to 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 look at this realistically and to and to really take the ideas on board but it is all too easy for me to see how even if this man and his acolytes of whom there are many are well-meaning i still think that they can very much be led and misled down a very wrong alley towards what ultimately will be a nightmare totalitarian vision of the future Hi. I'm so glad you're on time. I'm V. I'm looking forward to showing you around Plandopolis today. My husband works from home. He's a virtual engineer working on one of the city's desalination plants. He controls the robots who do all the important maintenance. 
I think he basically plays computer games for a living. <laughs> you ready to go? Have you got your calorie card open on your smartphone? I registered your visit with Slick Travel Corp the other day, so they've uh, allotted you a journey time to, to match mine. It makes so much sense, doesn't it? Switch off brain and go to work. <laughs> with this many people around, I'm glad there's a mega computer in charge. We're so lucky. Uh, our kids were allocated a school quite near my practice so I can drop them off on the way. It saves on our calorie ration. Well, it won't be long until the little darlings get their career announcements. They've been working so hard, so I'm sure they'll get something good. N not that there's anything wrong with fixing carbon scrubbers for a living or anything. Are you hungry? Let's pop to the market as we're passing. Right, what's on the menu this month? No, not meat. It's not your birthday. The Global Food Council are doing a really good job of keeping food production going. I mean, you don't get the choice you used to, but we're better off than most. I think it's probably easiest to walk from here. You barely see a car in the city centre nowadays, unless you're rich. <laughs> oh, the state knows they just aren't practical anymore. We're all trying to meet our global carbon deal. Electric bikes are so much better for getting around our neighbourhood. And why waste valuable space on car parks when you can use them to grow food? I don't care what you say, Alex. They don't deserve to live in that ghetto. They are completely disconnected. No high-speed transport system, no new internet. They miss out on jobs and many essential services, too. Oh, hi again. <laughs> what a day. I had to make a, an emergency visit to the Cry Freedom ghettos. I mean, I miss my sister like mad, but I'm glad they went when they moved to New Amsterdam. They're safe from climate change on the floating city. <laughs> that must be her now. It's much easier to meet up with friends virtually now. So many cities have banned cars in central areas. Ooh, looks like she's got some juicy gossip. That, my friends, is Plannedopolis, a vision of the future that I am absolutely disgusted to say is not sarcastic. It is not a joke. This is not some nightmare Orwellian future that someone has envisioned as a way of warning people about the future. This is actually a vision of the future that is being promoted by some of the largest corporations on the planet. We'll get more information about this from VigilantCitizen.com, which wrote on January 6th, 2011 about this video, Plannedopolis Infomercial for 1984-style City of the Future. Quote, funded by corporations such as Bank of America, the City of London Corporation, PepsiCo UK, Time Warner, Royal Dutch Shell, and Vodafone, Forum for the Future envisions scenarios for cities in 2040. No, this is not a sarcastic video. It is a real, serious scenario. To sum up, Food and water is regulated and rationed by a global food council, which seizes total control over farming. Meat is a rare treat, only to be enjoyed on special occasions. The state decides what your job will be with designated career announcements. Nobody has the choice to decide their own vocation. Movement and behavior is controlled by a calorie credit card linked to a smartphone that rations the amount of travel the citizens of Plantopolis are allowed to make. Private ownership of cars will be banned for non-elitists because the state knows they just aren't practical anymore. It makes so much sense, doesn't it, insists the smiley-faced slave V, who enjoys the fact that she can switch off brain and go to work, adding, with this many people around, I'm glad there's a mega computer in charge. 
For those who resist and still cling to some semblance of freedom in defiance of the state and the supercomputers running the slave grid, there's the Cry Freedom Ghetto, prison camps for malcontents who are blocked from getting jobs, accessing high-speed transport, or the internet. Other scenarios conceived by the Forum for the Future are slightly different, but they all have common threads. Drastic reduction of rights, privileges, and freedoms. Constant reference to an elite having exclusive rights on cars and other luxuries. State controlling all aspects of life. A new world order is not a conspiracy theory. They are selling it to you as we speak. End quote. Now, in my mind, nothing can really put it more forcefully than that. Technocracy is just another form of tyranny, and it's one that will ultimately play into the hands of the mega corporations and the banksters and all of the people who have been wielding the power behind the scenes for a very long time. They will still be wielding the power in the so-called technocratic society, where all of the technocrats are really just puppets and minions for the world elite themselves. So... In that scenario, we can more properly place the context of this idea of this noble, technological, completely uh, scientist-run society where, where these floating angels descended from heaven to, to decide only the most logical and rational decisions for society will decide how things are run. I say boo hiss to that. I think it's complete fooey, and I think we're being sold just another form of tyranny. And this is something that I had the chance to discuss with our old friend Aaron Franz of The Age of Transitions on an edition of Corbett Report Radio on Republic Broadcasting last year. So tonight we're going to be taking a look at a very specific part of that, that system, and uh, it's a word, actually, that I think is probably going to be the word of 2012 in the same way that the word of 2010 was austerity, a word that we've been reintroduced to recently, although it is certainly not a new word and that word is technocracy. And to give an idea of the context in which that's being raised these days, we can take a look, for example, at a, an editorial that was up on The Guardian back in uh, November, back on the 13th of November. It was under the title Europe, the Rise of the Technocracy. And it, the subhead is the appointment of economic experts is viewed not as a problem, but as an affirmation that these nations mean business. Just reading from uh, sort of the heart of that article, it says, The rise of the technocracy, to distort Michael Young's famous phrase, is what we are witnessing. This ugly term conveys two separate things. The first is a contrast with a more familiar ocracy, that derived from demos, a Greek word which brings to mind the common people. Messrs. Papadimus and Monti, referring to, of course, to the new prime ministers of Greece and uh, Italy, respectively, have not had to worry about them since both are unelected. Not merely unelected in the Gordon Brown sense of taking up the premiership midterm, but truly unelected in the sense that Mr. Brown would only have been if he had entered number 10 without having bothered to stand as an MP. If distance from the popular opinion is the first thing conveyed by technocrat, the second is expertise. And et cetera, et cetera. This article goes on to talk about how the appointment of uh, Papadimos and uh, and uh, Monti in Greece and Italy is a sign that basically these these countries are starting to take uh, their 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 democracy and and turn it into a technocracy, a, a system that's run by these supposed experts. In this case, economic experts to fix the economic problems that that these uh, these countries are undergoing. But as anyone who's looked into the history of a Papadimos or a Monti, for example, will already know. Uh, the, the term expert, uh, again, is being abused and misused to just basically mean banking insider. 
and someone who's very much uh, beholden to the interests that uh, that have put them into power. And just as an example of that, of course, Mon- Mario Monti is a Bilderberger and has been for a long time. No surprise there. So we just see continuity of agenda mas- masking itself behind this expert term. But at any rate, we're talking about technocracy. And of course, uh, right now in the European political context, it's economic uh, experts who are being parachuted in from the elite to try to save the world, quote unquote. But uh, Aaron, let's let's start talking about some of the the, um, the implications of this and, and what it all means. But perhaps we should start with the term itself, because unless we define a term, there's no way to really fruitfully talk about it. So when we talk about technocracy, what what comes to mind and what are some of the historical precedents for this? Yeah, well, in terms of the word, you uh, mentioned the Greek, or you or that article mentioned the Greek roots of democracy. Demos meaning uh, the group or the mob. Uh, if you just break down technocracy in a sim- similar way, you get the Greek root of uh, techno being techna. And uh, that has to do with uh, art, skill, craft, method, or systems. And the technocracy is really the master masterment of arts and crafts and a little side note here for everybody if we were to get into more occult meanings of arts and crafts we could go on for hours and hours on that and that would be a fun subject but the subject of a technocracy is yeah and it's basically the rule by experts and the rule by technicians um unelected officials bureaucrats that um work their way into uh places of power in society. So uh, with the democracy, you have at least, um, we're told, you know, free elections and the people at least get to vote on who uh, are their elected officials. But with a technocracy, it's uh, faith in the wisdom of science and the wisdom of uh, scientists and uh, bureaucrats and uh, people uh, working within the system, various uh, systems. So, so it's, it's, it's faith that these experts will rise up to the top and they, through their expertise, will guide us in the right direction because they're the ones who know, be- know best. Right, exactly. I think you, you hit on the basically the two of the, the main planks of, of the problem here and, and two, I guess, flanks on which this, this idea can be attacked. And one is that we have to rely on these experts, you know, being able to actually truly um, understand the situation and provide the, the solutions for them. And uh, that's one thing in and of itself. But the other part of the problem is that they are unelected. So it's not even that uh, that we get to decide what is the, the best uh, technocratic solution to a problem. It's that these these technocrats are literally being parachuted in down from the heavens by the elite to to come in and save the day. But, of course, these are just part of the exact same class. In the case of someone like Amario Monti or, or Papademos, these are exactly part of the, the, the ruling class that have been really trying, I think, demonstrably so, to, to scuttle the economy for, for years now to, in order to bring in their new system that they want. So um, so it raises two of the problems, I think, right off the bat with technocracy, one of them being the, the problem, well, do the do the so-called experts really know what they're talking about? And number two, of course, the, the fundamental problem, who are these experts and how do they get to be the experts and who says they're the experts and how do they get into their positions of power? So two very important problems, I think, with this concept. Yeah, exactly. They can basically just be the hand-picked darlings of the establishment that may be at the time. And uh, that's exactly what you're saying, is that we're going to get um, people who are at least lauded as experts. And and 
in that uh, in that context, the problem becomes well, who gets to say who's an expert and who isn't? You know, you, you know and 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 that's where the real power lies. Not even in so much all these experts that are put out to run everything, but in the people who are appointing these experts, because obviously it's not the public anymore. It is uh, mainly uh, financial institutions and uh, banking institutions at the moment that are placing their uh, agents in places of power now, and we can see that in Italy and other countries since it's happening right now. So that's uh, the very real, real-world example of uh, this all coming about. And so the question returns to one that we were talking about just a few weeks ago on this podcast, the question of experts and the experts who are in control of this technocracy. Now, in that planned opolis vision of the nightmare future, it's the loving mother computers that, that understand everything and can calculate anything, or so the public is told. Although, who programs the computers and who uh, checks to their results? Well, uh, I, I will leave that to the listener's imagination. But I think the, the point is well made that it all comes back to who gets to be appointed these experts in control of the society. And this, again, is where technocracy elides into expertocracy. And expertocracy, of course, just means rule of whoever has the most, uh, the most funding and the most, as well as the most techniques for manipulating the public mind to accept their so-called authority, more on which shortly. But first, let's look at just one tiny aspect of how this can work its way into our present real everyday reality in horrifying ways. And that's the development of a very, very disturbing profession known as bioethics, which is claiming to be the scientific study of all of these social and societal problems and quandaries posed by all the incredible leap in technology that we're seeing in all sorts of fields right now, but of course, especially in medicine and in biology. So we have bioethicists who are the people who are, I guess, appointed by the leaders from on high to be the experts telling us the way that we should be changing society and even our conceptions of basic human morality and the forms of the family and all of this in the name of listening to the experts. And lest you think I'm joking, just a couple of examples should hopefully suffice for now, although I, of course, as always, invite you to take a look into this in, in your own time at your own leisure. But let's take a look at this article from BioEdge from January 27, 2012 via Cryptagon.com. UK bioethicist, pregnancy and natural birth should not be tolerated. Quote, pregnancy and childbirth are so painful, risky, and socially restrictive for women that public funding should urgently be directed to the development of artificial wombs. This is the only way to achieve true equality between men and women, for then neither women nor men would then be limited by having children and the burdens of reproducing the species would be shared equally. This is the radical suggestion made by a leading British bioethicist, Anna Smajdur, of the University of East Anglia. Artificial gestation, or ectogenesis, is currently science fiction, but it may be possible. Dr. Smajdor believes that in a truly liberal society, pregnancy and childbirth should not be tolerated. End quote. Well, uh, yes, absolutely. You can't make that up, and nor can you make up this rather worrying story called Are We Ready for a Morality Pill via New York Times? But, of course, we get this from stratrisks.com, written by bioethicist Peter Singer, talking about the possible development in the future of 
uh, of drugs that would be able to alter our neurochemistry in order to make us more, quote-unquote, moral people. And I suppose that is in the eyes of the beholder, who in this case would be the big pharma people pushing this morality pill, which I'm sure would only have everyone's best interests at heart. Once again, we come back to the funding of this technology and how it's being put into place, despite all the flowery platitudes of how this is going to transition us off into some worldly, unworldly, amazing society where there's no money and everyone is happy and living in these gleaming plastic cities. We can see that on the ground, in reality, it is being implemented by the multinationals and their bankster puppets, puppeteers that should be with their, well, limitless amounts of phony money created out of nothing on the backs of the debt that we owe them. So I think we understand how this plays into the system. But it's also important to understand how in this system, the only way this can come about is through the conscious manipulation of the public into believing that this or that class, like the bioethicists, are rulers and deserve to be the rulers because they are so smart. And how do you get your group of technocrats into place rather than another group who may be well-meaning and really do want to share this wonderful technology with all? Well, through the conscious manipulation of the public, something that has been studied, talked about, and written about profusely for, at the very least, a century. And to get into that history, let's listen to this excellent excerpt from a very important podcast called Empire, Power, and People by Andrew Gavin Marshall that's being put out on a regular basis at BoilingFrogsPost.com. In 1922, Lippmann wrote his profoundly influential book, Public Opinion, in which he expressed his thoughts on the inability of citizens or the public to guide democracy or society for themselves. The intellectuality of mankind, Lippmann argued, was exaggerated and false. Instead, he defined the public as an amalgam of stereotypes, prejudices, and inferences, a creature of habits and associations, moved by impulses of fear and greed and imitation, exalted by tags and labels. Lippmann suggested that for the effective manufacture of consent, what was needed were intelligence bureaus or observatories, employing the social scientific techniques of disinterested information to be provided to journalists, governments, and businesses regarding the complex issues of modern society. These essentially came to be known and widely employed as think tanks, the most famous of which, or infamous of which, is the Council on Foreign Relations, founded in 1921, and to which Littman later belonged as a member. Now, the notion of disinterested information simply implies information without uh, a supposed ideological slant. It's not information that's meant to uh, sort of give people the impetus for action or mobilization or philosophy or humanity and understanding. It's information that is perceived as non-ideological. It's disinterested. Of course, it's it's totally ideological in the sense that it's simply supportive of, of power. It's it's sir, it's information and ideas that support power, and that is very ideological. But they simply state we are non-ideological, we are disinterested, and this makes them seem neutral and unbiased. But this is a technique that goes back even prior to Lippmann's era. In 1925, Lippmann wrote another immensely important work entitled "The Phantom Public." in which he expanded upon his conceptions of the public and democracy. In his concept of democratic society, Lippmann wrote that 
a false ideal of democracy can lead only to disillusionment and to meddlesome tyranny. And to prevent this from taking place, the public must be put in its place, so that each of us may live free of the trampling and the roar of a bewildered herd. Defining the public as a bewildered herd, Lippmann went on to conceive of public opinion not as the voice of God nor the voice of society, but the voice of the interested spectators of action. Thus the opinions of the spectators must be essentially different from those of the actors. This new conception of society managed by actors and not the bewildered herd of spectators would be constructed so as to subject the managers of society, the actors, according to Lippmann, to the least possible interference from ignorant and meddlesome outsiders. In case there was any confusion, the bewildered herd of spectators made up of ignorant and meddlesome outsiders is the public, is we the people. Once again, the public mind has been being prepped for a very long time to accept this rule by decree of the authorities and the experts, and it is absolutely as chilling, if not more terrifying, than any tyranny that we've seen in the past, because this one is, as I say, a game for all the marbles. It is to define what it is to be human and how we even affect things like people's morality at the neurochemical level. And once we start to forfeit our humanity and our very existence and our societal structure and our morality and all of this to the hands of a technocratic elite who are supposedly there to swaddle us in the loving arms of this wonderful world government that they're going to institute and that H.G. Wells was writing about almost a century ago. Well, until we realize all of that and all of the implications of that, well, how can we ever truly come to terms with what is being proposed? And this is a subject that ignites great passions in people, especially people who do see the wonders that technology can and has already brought to humanity. And I am not here to disavow that, and I'm not here to say that technology is in and of itself bad or something that we must be fearful of necessarily, but it is something that we have to understand as being part of a greater social context that has persisted for centuries and is not likely to magically wither away simply because there are some good people who are working within this technocratic movement. And that's what I think is the important thing to take away from this point, which is that people can say, oh, this isn't some utopic, idealistic thinking. People can say, oh, well, this isn't that type of technocracy. People can say, oh, well, that's that's their vision of the future. This is our vision of the future. And we can get into semantic games about that. But I think the underlying concept is still here. And it's in that context that I think people can better understand my video against utopia. Welcome. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com with the last word on utopia. Those with evil intent are seldom courteous enough to announce their intentions openly. As history has shown us time and again, oppressive tyrants seldom come to power campaigning on oppression. Quite the contrary. The most pernicious evil always presents itself as something necessary, something transitory, a mere waypoint on the road to the land of milk and honey. In this way, the masses can be led to not only tolerate the most intolerable conditions, but actually to support those who would seek to rule over them. In the early days, even the most ruthless dictators are wildly popular. By the time the public realizes it's been had and the blood starts flowing in the streets, it's too late. 
the regime is in place, and the promises that the tyrant used to gain power are already replaced with the yoke of repression. In France, the revolutionaries rallied under the banner of liberty, equality, and fraternity. Within a few short years, their revolution had morphed into the reign of terror, a bloody dictatorship of the guillotine in the name of securing the utopia that the public had been promised. Even at the height of the campaign, as the blood of the people flowed in the streets, Robespierre argued that the bloodshed was a virtuous outgrowth of democracy, and even wrote that it represented the despotism of liberty against tyranny. In Russia, the Bolsheviks came to power under the slogan, Land, Peace and Bread. Within just five years, however, Lenin had ensured a smooth transition from czarist dictatorship to Soviet dictatorship. He dissolved the Constituent Assembly, which the Bolsheviks did not control, after its first meeting. He disbanded the factory committees, which promised to give industrial workers democratic control over their own operations. And he vastly expanded the state security services, which imprisoned tens of thousands of anti-Bolsheviks and summarily executed thousands more. In Cambodia, the communist movement grew in strength and size on the back of the promise to restart civilization and return to year zero, a mythical paradise in which agrarian peasants would become rulers of their own destiny. On his rise to power, Salath Sar, the leader of the Communist Party, stopped living with and consulting with the party leadership. Once he had attained control of the country, he changed his name to Paul Pot and began an extermination of two million of his own people, a full quarter of the country's population. One out of every four people in Cambodia died in Pol Pot's delusional pursuit of his imagined utopia. Nor are these by any means the only examples of this phenomenon. The English roundheads overthrew the king just to find that they had replaced him with a lord protector of aristocratic pretensions. Mussolini marched on Rome on the back of mass public support and proceeded to set up a prototypical fascist dictatorship. The Chinese were promised a great leap forward and ended up bathing in the blood of 60 million of their countrymen. Time after time, the masses have been whipped into a revolutionary fervor by leaders promising a perfect system of governance. And time after time, they have paid for that fervor with their lives. The term utopia itself was coined by Sir Thomas More in a tract written in the early 1500s. The name contains a play on words between the Greek term for nowhere, ou, and the prefix eu, meaning good. Utopia, then, is both an imaginary world, a nowhere land, and a good place, an ideal that we can strive toward in thinking of a good or just system of rule. More's utopia was distinctly socialist in nature. There is no money or private property. The economy and the workday are centrally planned to benefit the state. The community eats together in a common dining hall. Children are separated from their parents to be raised by nurses. In many ways, this depiction of a perfectly harmonious, perfectly regimented society laid the foundation for the last 500 years of utopian socialism. Time and again, utopian revolutionaries have returned to these ideas, whether from a misguided attempt to create an ideal society, or a cynical understanding that the utopian urge can be commandeered by an unscrupulous dictator for his own advantage. In the end, the results are always the same. The promised worker's paradise never seems to come, and the few at the top reap all the benefits. In modern times, a technological idealism has been grafted onto this utopian socialism to create an even more enticing strain of thought with which to capture the imagination of the masses. As the mechanization of the industrial era increased productivity beyond what could ever have been dreamed in the pre-industrial era, a group of technocrats emerged, promising a world in which technology itself would make possible a world of plenty. In this technological utopia, the machines would do the work, and the workers would be freed from the mundane jobs that had always defined their existence. 
The Bolsheviks especially latched onto the promise of technology in the early days of the Soviet Union. Aware of the enormous task before them, the Soviets hoped to create a modern, industrial, centrally planned economy out of the poor, feudal, agricultural Russian state they had taken over. The centerpiece of this technological transformation of Russia was to be Magnitogorsk, a steel manufacturing city in the Urals that was mandated into existence by Stalin's first five-year plan of 1929. The city was to be built from scratch and serve as an example of a technological utopia. The public was shown propaganda films depicting a modern paradise, a testament to the wonders of industry and the technocratic method. The reality, of course, turned out to be exactly the opposite of what the public had been promised. Today, Magnitogorsk is, is as dilapidated as the American industrial cities it was based on. The city is dirty and run down, residential areas are awash in the nauseous fumes of the factories that were supposed to be the marvels of this modern age. The residents, far from delighting in a world of plenty, long suffered under the yoke of Soviet repression and struggled to get their daily needs fulfilled. Ironically, Magnitogorsk did serve as the showcase of the Soviets' promised technological utopia. Unfortunately for the technocrats, what it showed was not how the machinery of the modern age would magically free those who had never been free, but how the very system of technolo technological planning was fundamentally flawed, unable to provide even for the most basic needs of the citizenry. Эта информация примерно в таком виде, но по существу мы знаем, как обстоят дела в торговле всеми товарами, всеми основными товарами народного. Remarkably, even now, long after the 20th century technocrats and their vision of the industrial nirvana have been so thoroughly discredited, after hundreds of years of utopian socialist fantasies have shown to lead to nothing but suffering and bloodshed, there is a new class of technocrats who are rising up to once again offer the masses a technological utopia which will provide for all their needs. Once again we are being told that in this coming utopia an army of benevolent machines will provide for all our needs. There will be no need for money or property, no need for violence or coercion of any kind ever again. In fact, we are told, this technological revolution will not only transform our society, but human nature itself. Freed from the shackles of want by the machines that will provide for all our needs, humans will no longer be violent or selfish or greedy. This system, we are told, will be rational and logical. The machines will know what resources are needed, how to acquire them, and how to distribute them. The machines will be able to calculate our needs and provide for them better than we ever could. The machines will be programmed by scientists, and, we are led to believe, they will always know how many toothbrushes to make. There is no need to worry about who owns the machines, we are told. No cause for concern about how they are programmed, or how they, or how they make calculations about things we don't know. In this utopia, the proponents of this movement tell us there will be no evil people, no elite class that tries to control others, no one at all who tries to control the system, because human nature itself will no longer allow for it. Ultimately, perhaps it is not surprising that such utopian fantasies can still attract acolytes. The masses have always wanted the quick fix, the wave of the magic wand that will free them from this world of work, toil, and strife forever. How appealing it is to be offered the promise of a perfect system, a way to organize our society that, would, that will allow us to live in peace and harmony forever. After all, if such a system were really possible, who wouldn't want to attain it? But that, then, is the danger of the utopian ideal. 
The fact that it is always just out of reach, always just one step further down the path of good intentions, means that those who are willing to use this utopian fantasy to lead society in a dictatorial direction can dangle it before the public like a carrot to lead them down the garden path. It is in short nothing but a tool to enslave the public in the name of creating the perfect society. Indeed, not just to enslave them, but to get them to work toward their own enslavement. Until this is realized, utopia will always be a powerful motivating force for shaping our society. Those who promise a world of plenty, where we will receive everything for nothing, will always be popular with the public, looking for an easy solution to all their problems. And those who warn about the dangers of utopian thinking will never be popular. They will always be cast as obstacles in the path of the ideal society and dismissed as charlatans by the masses who are swept into revolutionary fervor, their judgment clouded by the comforting fog of utopian visions. No, it is never a popular thing to warn against utopia, but it is nonetheless necessary. For the Corbett Report in Western Japan, I am James Corbett. Well, you'll pardon my Russian in that clip, but uh, but of course, that uh, if you want to actually find out what was being said and you don't speak Russian, please go to the video. The subtitles are there so you can figure it out. But that was from Adam Curtis's documentary talking about uh, some of the bizarreness, the absolute craziness that went on in the Soviet Union in the name of their technocratic utopia the better part of a century ago. So once again, this is not a new idea. And we see very troubling signs that it is being that the public is being prepped to accept this idea once again and go through the cycle once again. So let me be clear about what I am and am not saying here. First of all, I am saying that no, regardless of whatever movement people want to become a part of and what, whatever they want to promote, I am 100% totally on board with people promoting their ideas and getting on board with their ideas and putting their plastic cities together and doing whatever it is they feel is going to make the change that will affect the the fundamental change in our society that will lead to a better planet. I have nothing against people self-organizing and doing that on their own. I wish them truly, I wish them the best in that endeavor. And I truly hope they are able to put together something that is better than our current society. And when and if they do, I'm there. Absolutely, no doubt about it. But I absolutely know that this type of movement, even when led by the best intention of people and with the best intention followers who are working along to make it happen, can and eventually, I think, will be misled and will be taken over, will be corrupted, will be steered towards things that are not productive. And inevitably, time and time again throughout history, these types of ideas and ideals have led down the corridor towards tyranny. So that is my caution, and that's why I am not a supporter of these technocratic movements in whatever form they pop up, because I understand that there is an underlying problem with who controls the technology, who programs the computers, who decides what is the most rational quote-unquote decision in any particular context. And I think that's something that we need to, as a society, take a very close look at before we go along, along this path towards technocratic tyranny. Well, that's it for today. I am your host, James Corbett, inviting you to join me again, not this, not next week, but the week after for the continuation of the Corbett Report podcast.